This is Tom Bernard. Can't get enough of sports talk with Phil Mackey and Judd Zolgad? Tune in to the new Tom Bernard Show podcast Monday through Friday as Phil and Judd join me to discuss the latest sports headlines and whatever else comes to mind. Just download the Tom Bernard Show app wherever you get your podcasts or visit TomBernardShow.com. It's another way to get more from me and Judd talking sports and having fun with Tom, and it's all at your fingertips. Download the Tom Bernard Show app now and join the conversation. You're listening to a Score North podcast right now, and if you're a business owner, so are your customers. In fact, I could be talking about your business right now, telling the tens of thousands of loyal fans about you and sending them to your business. Find out how you can partner with your favorite Score North podcast. Visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Fill out the form, and we'll get in touch with you quickly. Once Phil, Judd, Declan, or others start talking about your company, you'll be amazed at how many fans start showing up. So visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. For those who simply can't get enough talk about the Vikings, we present Bonus Chatter. Bonus Chatter about your favorite team that's unscripted, unfiltered, and uninterrupted. This is another edition of 1500 ESPN's Purple Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Purple Podcast. Matthew Collar here with you and joining me from presnapreads.com as well as now an ESPN podcast. I'm very proud to see that and was a guest on said ESPN podcast, Kean Fahey. Kean, how are you? Uh, much like the Vikings were kind of working against the odds with me today, I'm dying sick and an ex-hurricane called Ophelia has just hit Ireland today, so... This connection might disappear halfway through this podcast. The explanation. How often do hurricanes hit Ireland? Well, we have to be sure here. It's an ex-hurricane, whatever whatever that means. But there are trees flying all over the place. There are lampposts getting knocked over. People without electricity. A couple of people have died. This is the first time ever, I believe. So uh, it's a bit bizarre, it's obviously, to do with all that other stuff that we're not going to talk about. But it's a bit weird. Yeah, okay, that's pretty unusual. I mean, I saw something about that, but I didn't realize that they never hit Ireland. So, well, I, I, I wish you the best of luck then, um, and with the cold as well. But I, 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 <laughs> That seems a little less big <laughs> in terms of Ireland. Well, uh, I, well, we'll just refer to you as Jordan through the way. This will be the flu podcast that you uh, worked your way through. So I, I brought you on because... If people haven't read your work, you should check out presnapreads.com and see some of the great stuff that you've done with analyzing quarterbacks. And every year you write a book where you look at every pass that every starting quarterback threw, and you come up with some really fascinating stuff. You've got some different statistics that I really like. Interceptable passes is one that people might have seen um, that can kind of give us an idea of where a guy's going for a different direction. So there's a lot of different things that you've come up with there. And I recalled reading, it might have been your first book, the chapter on Teddy Bridgewater was basically, Teddy Bridgewater is a very, very good quarterback, and you all should recognize that, despite his quarterback rating, which I think we can agree is not generally a very good stat. So now, Kian, that Teddy Bridgewater's returning to practice, let's talk about Teddy Bridgewater. In 2015, he went 11-5 and as a starter, took his team to the playoffs, led a game-winning drive, but had his kicker let him down. What was it about Teddy Bridgewater's game back in 2015 that you thought gave him the potential to be a true franchise quarterback? 
Well, I think the first thing we have to do with any quarterback is kind of attack the stats and the production and the stuff that sets the perception. And if we go back to that Vikings offense, it was Adrian Peterson focused. And I think that was the year Adrian Peterson got hurt, actually. So he wasn't actually still there. I could be wrong. He played two years. One, Peterson was there. One, he wasn't. And when Peterson was there, they used to run that offense that focused on setting Peterson up for success. But it didn't set Bridgewater up for success. It asked him to throw vertical routes. It asked him to play under different deeper drops where he was always under pressure. And if you kind of that offense that they ran, and if that's compared to what the Vikings are doing right now, even with uh, even with their current starter, uh, Case Keenum, like I couldn't even remember Case Keenum's name there. That's, that's how <laughs> insignificant Case Keenum is. But if you if you take that offense that that used to be and compare it to the expansive and explosive and diverse offense that they're running right now, the difference is just massive, and it's got nothing to do with the quarterback. So when Bridgewater was in that offense, he got dinged as a game manager because he didn't put up big touchdowns, he didn't put up big yardage. And it wasn't really fair. It wasn't really a reflection of his quality of play because he spent most of his time trying to evade pass rushers in the pocket, extending plays, making tight throws into very tight windows into coverage where because teams didn't really have to blitz. So when they did blitz, he was able to cut them apart. But when they didn't blitz, he would have to throw to smaller receivers in very tight windows with two and three defenders. He had to look them off and, and manipulate them. And so Bridgewater was kind of a very young quarterback thrown into an offense that was extremely difficult for him to, to, to function into. He, his responsibilities weren't like Derek Carr's in Oakland or even Blake Bortles in Jacksonville. He was thrown into an offense where he had to carry a huge load, but it never showed up in the stats because of the way the offense was structured and because of the way his, his supporting cast, how, it, how they executed. So the reason you really liked Bridgewater was technically he, his footwork was brilliant, his eye level was brilliant. He understood how to play, or he understood how to diagnose coverages and how to anticipate windows. He was a phenomenal intermediate passer. One of the best plays he, he would make would be finding Kyle Rudolph on an intermediate crossing route after after Mike Wallace had cleared cleared downfield, and he recognized the type of throw and where to put it perfectly to leave Rudolph the space. Uh, and the and it was less about his physical ability, but Bridgewater did have some physical ability. His physical ability wasn't like Michael Vick, he's going to run 30 yards downfield. His physical ability was to execute difficult handoffs, to extend plays to either flat and still be able to throw the ball, to if a defender within the confines of the pocket and keep his eyes up and then throw the ball again. If you go back to his, his debut against the Saints when he came on at halftime, uh, or just before halftime, I believe, instead of Matt Castle, one of the first plays he made, he stepped up in the pocket, evaded a free rusher, and threw the ball with three or four blockers closing around him to hit a crossing route over the middle. I think it was Greg Jennings. So you, you had a guy who whose poise, whose technical ability, whose awareness, and whose precision on short and intermediate routes was all phenomenal. The only real criticism you had of him was he couldn't hit vertical. When a guy was wide open, running straight down the middle of the field. Yeah, the, the intermediate routes really stands out to me because you mentioned in the North Turner offense that he was asking guys to have kind of slower developing routes, forcing Teddy Bridgewater to move around in the pocket a lot. And I, and I wonder about now when he does get back in a game, because I think it's inevitable at this point that once he starts practicing, unless the knee doesn't hold up at all, that we're going to see Teddy Bridgewater, if not earlier than later to try to get them to the top of the division to try to save the season because I don't think that Case Keenum can continue to hold up and win a lot of games even with great defensive performances with the schedule that they've got coming up but even if he does that they would want to see what Bridgewater looks like at some point and you touched on a little bit the difference of offense that he might be stepping into and I think it's night and day Kean, because you, you would have not only the shorter passes that Pat Schirmer is dialing up with a West Coast offense, 
But I think just the number of weapons and the talent, Stephon Diggs, he's got a groin issue, but he'll be back. You consider Diggs and how much he's grown since his first year. Adam Thielen leads the NFC in yards right now. Rudolph is still playing at a high level. In fact, probably playing better than he was last year. And even without Delvin Cook, Jarek McKinnon is shown to be a very good weapon in the screen game. Plus, they have a right and left tackle who can actually play. It seems like Teddy Bridgewater's return is set up about as nicely as you could do it, minus having Delvin Cook. Yeah, everything you said there is important to matters, and none of it is the most important thing to me. The, the most important thing to me is they've now got a, a system, a, a play calling, a, an offensive coordinator, a guy who is willing to send all of his receivers into routes, yeah. who is willing to use his offensive linemen in different ways. When, when North Turner was there, the big complaint was he, he had an offensive line that didn't work. So what North Turner did was sacrifice two and three eligible receivers and use them as blockers. That's fine in theory. It gives you extra time in the pocket, although it kind of didn't with them because they were so bad at blocking. It didn't matter how many they kept in. But in theory, that, that, that's fine. You have extra players in, block, in the block, so you should get more time in the pocket. The problem with that is you're, there's a trade-off. You've got two receivers running downfield, and you instead of you've got four or five receivers running downfield. And that's not something we ever talk about, but it's something that matters an awful lot because you've got tighter windows. You've got more defenders waiting, reading the quarterback size. So if you take like uh, an offense like Tom Brady's in New England, one of the staples you will always see with Tom Brady, they will kind of keep six blockers in. The only time they will ever keep seven or eight in is when they're going deep. And it's those really, really aggressive shot plays where they're pulling uh, pulling alignment to, to sell the play fake and set up the, the play action. Uh, Brady drops probably eight yards deep, and they're sending Brandon Cook on deep, Robin Cook on the seam, and that's it. They might have a late check, check don't leak out, but generally there's, there's nothing else. And the reason they do that is they trust Brady to get rid of the ball. And they understand that having receivers out in routes pulls the defense apart, and it means that you're not directly addressing the pass protection. You're not directly giving the quarterback more time in the pocket. You're indirectly doing it by giving him the ball quicker, by making his throw easier. So if we can take Bridgewater and put him in that offense, I think it might work. The concern, besides the other, the one thing I should say before we get ahead of ourselves with Bridgewater, my expectations for him are a complete zero. As soon as you miss a whole season, as soon as you suffer a major injury, my expectations always revert back to zero. Him just getting back on the field would be an achievement as far as I'm concerned. So we'll talk about what his skill set was would be, but if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, Keen's saying he's going to be this, I'm not. But if you get in that offense where it's five receivers going in, that should play more to his strengths. It should play more to his acumen, his ability to diagnose defense pre-snap, react post-snap, get, get the ball out quickly, make good decisions, make quick decisions. The only thing that's kind of interesting left out of that is Bridgewater's greatest strength was that he allows you to cover for an offensive line. He was phenomenal against pressure. He he could make plays work that weren't supposed to work. Now, if you take him out of those situations and you put him in clean pockets, we're not 100% sure has he got that patience. Like the, When you talk about Dak Prescott, a lot of things that happened last year was Dak would get criticism for playing in good pockets and clean pockets. But there was a difference between Dak playing in clean pockets and Derek Carr playing in clean Derek Carr would catch and get rid of the ball and rush the ball out. That weight and hold the ball, know, he would feel the pressure around him, know how much time he had in the pocket, and may get the most out of each play by letting the routes develop. So do we know, can Bridgewater do that consistently? We don't, because he hasn't really played where he's got the kind of offensive line in front of him. The Vikings offensive line is great, but it's now good as far as I'm concerned. It's better. It, it, it hasn't just gone from being awful to being average. It's above average at least at this point, and that's because of his contributions in the passing game and the running game. So it's not just about pass protection there. 
Yeah, I think Riley Reef has been better than I expected him to be. I, I expected Riley Reef to kind of just be a guy who belonged in the NFL, but I think he's been a real game changer. I mean, he I don't don't remember a sack that he's allowed so far this season. Maybe one when Sam Bradford was kind of falling down uh, when he couldn't move with the knee issue. But other than that, I mean, Reef has done a tremendous job in the, at the most valuable position, and, and that does make a difference. Well, you, you touched on something that I, I wanted to ask you, which is just how much mobility plays a role in Bridgewater's success. Because what you often have anytime it's a black quarterback is he's a running quarterback. He's athletic. He's mobile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we know why that is. Uh, but I never thought of Bridgewater as a mobile quarterback necessarily that would end up gaining four or 500 yards a year through running. But I always thought of him as mobile as could break the pocket if necessary or could move really well inside the pocket. And now he doesn't have to escape in the same ways if he's got Riley Reef. Because when I was just going back and watching some of his 2015 season, I mean, Matt Khalil and TJ Clemmings on the, the tackle positions, I mean, he had no time to throw the ball many, many times that his offensive coordinator was asking him to do a seven-step drop. And it was immediately gets to the top of his drop, or do they call it the bottom, whatever. He gets to his drop, and then he turns around, and there is a guy in his face, and he's got a spin or he's got a move. I think this is going to be a, a big adjustment for him. Yes and no. I think the, the mobility comes into it when he was evading players, like on the plays you're describing there, where it's a broken play, where the protection is so bad that he has to evade a defender. But I think his mobility has always been closer to uh, Philip Rivers or Eli Manning, a, a, a younger Philip Rivers and Eli Manning. Guys who are really good at pocket, really good at just changing the leverage for their offensive linemen. Setting and resetting is something I talk about a lot when it comes to quarterbacks because if you look like Bradford's probably an obvious option, uh, but if, if Sean Watson right now is someone who's playing as an obvious option. Guys who can move and adjust to the offensive line around them and the blocking around them while keeping their eyes downfield. Guys like Bradford and Watson don't really do that. They move into pressure when they do try to move, and generally they will stay in, in one spot and wait for the pressure to close around them. Bridgewater isn't that guy. Bridgewater is kind of a quintessential pocket passer where he understands how to reset set his, uh, his alignment. He understands how to work within the confines of a pocket. And you have to be able to move to do that, but it's not like being able to run a fast 40 or being having an exceptionally high tree cone. It's about balance and it's about comfort and it's about trust in your leg. The bigger concern for Bridgewater is how does he react when those pockets close? And how does he step into throws? How does he feel comfortable keeping, keeping his foot in front of him when there's a, a blocker being thrown back into his lap? That's going to happen. Like That's unavoidable. That, that, those things always happen. And that's where the big concern is for me. And you saw when Sam Bradford came back from his second day at ACL there, playing for the Eagles during his, his first season, or it was his only season there, whatever, whatever, how many years he played there. His first season there, he, he played, I think, the first seven games. Then he got hurt with a shoulder injury for two games. And when he came back after that shoulder injury, he was a completely different player. And the reason wasn't the shoulder injury or the time off. The reason was he had gone through seven weeks of tentative footwork, seven weeks of learning to trust his knee. And eventually, because it came to the second half of the season and he played so much, he put, he found that trust again. He started delivering the ball with authority. He started playing comfortably from unclean pockets. That's going to be your bigger concern with Bridgewater. His ability to run the option or take take a play and make two defenders miss and die for a first down, that's a minimal part of his game. That's five, six, seven, eight percent of his of, of, of his, of his skill set. That's not what you build around. You build around his ability to throw the ball. You build around his technical prowess. You build around his, his comfort in the pocket. And because 
the, the Vikings are set up. The Vikings, the setup right now is interesting because Diggs and Thielen can do whatever you want them to do. But ideally, you would have that Bradford passer where he can fit the ball deep in, in on a 30 yards on a dime or he can throw in tight windows 40 yards downfield. And Bridgewater isn't going to do that. Bridgewater is a lot more likely to hold the ball in the pocket and try and wait for someone to come open underneath or come open on an intermediate route. Again, or every move comes into that, but it's not a huge part of it. It's a matter of the trust and comfort in that knee. I was regularly asked who's a better quarterback, who's a better quarterback. And I actually, before the trade happened, had them like right next to each other in whatever rankings whatever I was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. And my point was, these guys are basically the same caliber of quarterback. They're just very different styles. Bradford can hit the deep ball, Bridgewater can't. Bridgewater can move in the pocket and play against pressure. Actually, that's, that's not fair. Let me put that, do that again. Bridgewater can play in the pocket and execute tough bootlegs and throw on the move. Bradford can't. He does throw against pressure. They both throw against pressure. So it's a very different style. And I think Bradford, like if both of them were fully healthy, Bradford is a better fit for what the Vikings have right now. Bridgewater was a better fit for what they had. That's assuming that Bridgewater is the same quarterback who he was before. There is something that separates the two, I think, in a lot of fans' minds and in my mind, too, from being around them a little bit and from looking at how they perform in big situations. I tend to put value in it. I mean, I know that that there's a lot of we make fun of QB wins, and we should because from a year-to-year basis, somebody can win 10 or 11 games and be thought of as Mr. Winner. Uh, Derek Carr is this guy. I made this statement last year that I thought if you put a healthy Teddy Bridgewater from 2015 with Derek Carr's situation with the best offensive line in football or second best last year, he's got the same results or even better, right? But, you know, so Derek Carr gets all those wins. He's a leader and yada, yada, yada. But I do think there is something to be said for the makeup of Teddy Bridgewater the belief of the team around him, his ability to come through in big situations. I don't think it's a, a complete anomaly that Bridgewater was one of the best in the NFL at third down conversions over his two years, at third down yards per attempt. He had game-winning drives. He had comebacks. He led his team to a, to a big season when they probably had the wrong offensive setup. If I'm choosing between the two and Bridgewater is completely healthy, and Bradford is completely healthy, I think I would give that makeup edge to Bridgewater and probably lean in his direction. Yeah, I, I think this is probably somewhere where we di- uh, diverge a little bit. Uh, I, I'm not usually into the, the idea of third down passing being more important than first or second down passing. I do believe situational awareness is hugely important. The understanding when to be aggressive, when, when to be cautious, that matters a lot. So if you have a quarterback who is like... like for example, the most extreme, uh, most extreme example, Andy Dalton twice this year has thrown the ball away on fourth down while losing in the fourth quarter. That's <laughs> not just like that's just that's madness. That's situa- That's a complete absence of situational awareness. And my, part of the thing about that is, I feel like Bradford. Not actually. Let's let's kind of go away from these two specific quarterbacks and let's talk about it generally. I feel like if you have a quarterback who is excelling at the very end of games, like Matthew Stafford, a guy like he, he does it a lot. Just as an example. It's not always because they're great late in games. It's sometimes it's or they're late, great late in, in the down and distance or whatever. It's sometimes it's because they're not getting the same production beforehand. And my general point of view is every single down is equal to the other. Every single opportunity is an opportunity to score, an opportunity to get yards, an opportunity to create. And the idea that treating one late in the game is bigger than the other, I suggest it's more because of the way we receive games, the way media presents games, the way 
Scott Hansen shouts it's the witching hour in the last quarter of a game, <laughs> suggesting somehow that the last quarter is more important than the first, second and third. And that to me just doesn't really hold up. I, I feel like that every 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 play at this level, it's why I don't really buy into the playoffs being bigger than the regular season either. Once you're at the NFL, the NFL is the biggest level. The regular season games are only 16. I, I buy it more in an NBA situation or a Major League Baseball situation where there are 10,000 games a season, so you're probably going to be a little bit bored sometimes. You're going to be a little bit tired sometimes. You're not really going to feel like you need to win the game. In the NFL, because it's only 16 games, because it's only 60 plays or whatever for a game, it doesn't. It, it feels weird to me to suggest that one subsection of plays is more important than the other. But obviously, I understand too why you would think that way. Why you would suggest it. I'm not calling it stupid or whatever. I just it's not something I personally buy into. Yeah. No. I I get your your point on that. The way I look at it is that playing on third down. I mean, not only is it big situations pretty consistently throughout a game that the better quarterbacks if you just go over the last five years look who's the best on third down you're going to get the list of the best quarterbacks which i know you'll say look at first and second down too right i i I agree with that but i think when you're talking about guys who can be trusted in bigger situations consistently over a long period of time that there is something to that right i mean just in sports in general who's going to be aggressive like you mentioned matthew stafford I think part of why Matthew Stafford has had success late in those games is that he's extremely aggressive, sometimes to a fault in maybe a first down in the first quarter when he throws into double coverage or something, but it plays pretty well when you're late in the game and the other team is trying to play prevent defense and you can be aggressive and throw into tight windows. And I saw Bridgewater do it a lot of times where Adrian Peterson on first and second down would set him back on third and long and then he would come through with a big throw on third down. I also thought, saw many times where Sam Bradford would check down on third and seven and throw for four yards. And with Bradford, it's been over his whole career that, it, that he's got this third down number. It's one of the worst in the league. I think on the extremes, there might be something there that teams play a little bit d- different defensively on third down, knowing how often that you have to throw. First and second down are run pass most of the time, right? But... With third down, if it's anything more than two, they're probably looking at you to throw the ball. So they're playing in some sort of situation that is purely focused on you have to beat me with the throw, and the guys who can beat him with the throw are, in my mind, better. Now, that doesn't mean that I would solely pick a quarterback based on that because you know I'm sure that there are some quarterbacks who are have small sample size third down numbers. I just see some value in taking a look at that when I think about analyzing Teddy versus Sam Bradford. There's also an element of playing to the identity of your team, playing to the identity of your offense. I generally, in general, I'm someone who thinks Bradford gets uh, talked down on way too much overall. And I think the the third down stuff, the idea that he checks down too quickly, has largely been a product of situation. In, in St. Louis, it was because they had literally no receivers and no offensive line. There was no option but to throw the ball to check down or throw interception. In Philadelphia, Chip Kelly had him throwing flares to DeMarco Murray all the time, and it was a part of the scheme, a part of the design. In Minnesota, I feel like last year, he did generally did a good job of it. Like The, the offensive line over the second half of last season got to a point where they physically couldn't throw the ball down the field. They had literally mm-hmm. no time. There was a, a play against the Lions in, in on Thanksgiving where they were everyone was kind of shouting at Bradford, complaining about Bradford to be true to a curl route three yards downfield on, uh, I think it was third and nine, third and ten. 
And if you actually just froze the play and look at the curve, so there was no option to actually throw the ball downfield. So no matter who he threw to, he was going to get criticised for throwing the ball short. And I think last year it became a product of that. But if you kind of look at the good games, the times when the offensive line did hold up, he would check the check the ball down early in in like in the first half. He would be happy to punt and and let the ball, let the play go if the scoreline wasn't on the hand. End game this year. One, if I, he did something similar where when the score was uh, nil all or whatever it was in the first half and it was a bit of a punting battle, he checked the ball down. He, he was happy to take the yards that were there to say if they punted the ball away. But once you got, I think it was midway through the second quarter and into the second half, mm. those, that aggressiveness came and kicked in. And it was, hey, let, let's go win the game. And I feel like there's an element of that way when you have a great defense with you. I think it's something that smart quarterbacks do. They understand we're built to win low-scoring games. My job, my primary job, is don't turn the ball over in my own within thirty yards of my own, uh, my own end zone. And I don't like. Obviously, we can go through all the numbers, and you can talk about maybe I'm I'm more of a Bradford apologist than other people or whatever. I've never felt for these made decisions that are costing you games. I felt he's made decisions that are, are smart and that are calculated. Obviously, sometimes you're going to miss opportunities that the ball down too early. That happens to every court. But when you have the, the stats and track record that Bradford has people are going to take that as a reason to say he's making bad decisions. Uh, for for the, for this Vikings team, this Vikings team, typically, you've got a quarterback in there right now who is the total opposite of Bradford. You've got a guy mm-hmm. who thinks he can make every throw and who doesn't have the arms to make every throw, and that's a little bit concerning. Obviously, if you get Bridgewater in there, he's another guy to me who... I, 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 I wouldn't put Bradford up there as, like, let's say, let's just do it in the simplest possible fashion. If we rank them 1 to 32 for situational awareness. But Bradford is, like, slightly above average to average. I would say, agree with you that Bridgewater, in terms of understanding what the offensive needs, I don't just mean he needs 8 yards and 3rd and 7. Understanding what he needs situationally. Can we punt here? Do we need to get a first down here? Are we setting ourselves up to go on 4 down, take down so we're in a good 4 down situation? I do think Bridgewater is probably one of the better quarterbacks in the league, probably in the top 5, 6, 7, 8 of guys who can who, who can understand that and consistently do that well. So if you get him back on the field, if you get Bradford back on the field, a healthy Bradford, obviously, not the guy who played against Chicago, if you get the, either of those guys back on the field playing at the level we've seen them, I would be hugely excited, not just because the offense is better right now, but because the team is for defense to win games. And with both of those guys who understand you turn or they don't need to force throws and turn the ball over. With Bradford, I mean, this is the one problem with him being hurt. And the only problem that I care about with him being hurt is that we cannot solve this issue like this year was supposed to be when he when he solves it. Right. When he's finally got everything around him and then we finally find out if it is something with him with those third downs or with those big situations, which even I mean, I know coaches could be like this, but even Mike Zimmer had expressed some frustration about his lack of aggressiveness in the big situations and said that he's got to come through in those he had interception against Detroit. He had the interception against Washington. But the thing is, we're still kicking around the same information that we had with an abomination of an offensive line because we only have the sample size of one game this year to work with. I thought this year we would really find out whether he could be that quarterback or if it was some sort of deficiency in his game. And yet here we stand with a bone bruise or whatever the heck the knee problem is and not being able to figure that out. So I guess... For, for now, we, we just... I Father, guess, I've, I've got to jump in and, and just laugh at the idea of Mike Zimmer complaining about someone not being aggressive enough from the king of lining up with three tight ends of fullback and running the ball up the middle over and over and over again. 
So <laughs> Zimmer has no space to criticize anyone on third down aggressiveness. Well, at very least, though, you could say this year under Pat Shermer, I think things have been a lot of different in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. So that, that's that been one of them. I don't know, maybe one time at the goal line when they decided to do that, I think they got a touchdown for C.J. Ham from the one-yard line. But other than that, I have not seen a whole lot of lining right, up man. three tight ends and slamming it up the middle. So I, I mean, that, that's another thing, too, is that Bradford has had this inconsistency with different coaches throughout his career, and now he's got Pat Shermer, who he worked with this whole offense to uh, this whole offseason to design the offense exactly the way that he wanted it to be. And in week one, it looked like, well, you couldn't have executed this any better now that he's got time to throw and he's got a running game and on and on and on. And him going down, I, I mean, I, I just can't think of a more frustrating situation for a guy that was finally ready to prove that he was worthy of a number one overall pick, that it was the past and his situations that cost him, and it wasn't just some deficiency in his game. And yet, here we sit with this idea of him not even coming back at any point this season and then probably having to move on to another team uh you know, after this year and never really getting his big chance. I mean, it. I, I guess I, I look at him this year like this was going to be the one where he showed everyone that, he, you know, he's got this big arm. Like you said, I think it is uh, overstated if people say that he's not a smart decision maker. I think sometimes it's a little bit to his detriment, but maybe if he had felt finally 100% comfortable with the situation – he might have been more aggressive and might have felt more like he could be more dynamic in an offense than he ever was before when he was just trying to come in and do his job. Well, firstly, all fullbacks should be named C.J. Ham. That's oh, exactly it's a great what I want name. my fullback to be named. Great, great fullback. Especially for a fullback. No question. Um, he, he seems like the kind of guy who could probably play a defensive tackle as well. I have no idea. If, I don't even know who he is. But he, <laughs> just by the name, I feel like he could probably play some defensive tackle, be a bit of a Nikita Whitlock. Um, the, but that's like that's the only reason Bradford's in Minnesota. The man's been hugely unlucky, and you get all this, and it, it drives me insane as someone who's had multiple ACL tears and knee transplants and all the other nonsense you can have, any knee injury, you name it, I've had it. It drives me insane as someone saying he's fragile or he's broken or whatever. Like, sure, he's hurt, and he's but it's a matter of un, it's being lucky. It's not it's not a, a lack of toughness or a lack of ability or a lack of strength. It, some your knees are very fragile. One of the things that was explained to me when I tore my ACL in, in evolution right now, in where we where our bodies are in evolution, our knees aren't built to do anything except run in a straight line. And this is why ACL tears are so common. Like, if you look at the physical structure of your knee, you've got an MCL on the inside and uh, an ACL on, on in, within the center of the knee, uh, an LCL on the other side, and a PCL wrapped around the ACL, and then you've got all your ligaments and tendons. But if you just look at your leg and put it out in front of you and how you walk, the actual there's no actual thing to bend for you to turn or you to actually move. Just been so unlucky with that, and it's because like we will we will reach a point in evolution and in medical uh, in science where ACL tears don't really matter. Where you're coming back after two months or a month and a half or whatever it is, but at this point the damage that you get from tearing your ACL with mm-hmm. the cartilage that comes with it, with the meniscus that gets pieces taken out. Your knees are just never going to be right, and that's unfortunately where Bradford is. If he had stayed fully healthy, he would probably have spent his whole career with the Rams. Like I'm not sure they'd have been very good because it was Jeff Fisher's Rams, but <laughs> yeah. and that team in general wasn't very talented. But because he was, he's, because of his level of talent, I do genuinely 100% feel like injuries are the only reason we have questions about this guy. It's certainly not his arm, and it's certainly not his accuracy. 
because yeah. standing on the sideline at training camp and watching him throw every single day through every single practice, I came away thinking, how is this guy not one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL? And maybe that's why, you know, I'll admit my own brain just goes looking for answers when that's been the result that it's very hard to accept for any of us with anything that it can just be luck. Right. So then, I mean, that's part of the third down or situational bias probably is trying to find some explanation for why he's not the best, but really it is in major part because of those two injuries. And I think he's also always had dump it off offenses. He he's never had an offense that has asked him to air it out like this one probably was going to, even though it's West Coast, they were working the ball down the field quite a bit more. Uh, but I, I'm I'm 100% with you on all of that because as far as quarterback arms go, he is as good as it gets. He makes throws that you just cannot believe how accurate he could be 25, 35 yards down the field. And you see the completion percentage to Adam Thielen and Stephon Diggs on deep balls from Sam Bradford. And part of that is them. They're very good wide receivers. But among the top in the NFL last year when he was throwing it to those guys downfield, I think he completed something like 23 for 29 to Adam Thielen when it was over 15 yards, which is just outrageous numbers. So I'm with you on that, that it's been a lot of bad luck. But if you're the Vikings, you're going to look at his injuries, as you mentioned, and say, look, this is going to be a long-term issue, and we probably can't sign this guy to a five-year contract with huge money because it's going to be that way. So now, Kean, the, the last thing I just wanted to ask you is where you think that this might end up playing out through the rest of the season and through next year. And I know that you're not a big predictions guy, but just what's your sense, what's your thought on where the Vikings quarterback situation is going long-term? Um, I think this is probably an unpopular stance and probably not one people will They'll probably throw their hands up in the air and then exasperate at it. I'm not sure Bradford or Bridgewater is going to be the starter moving forward. Mm-hmm. I understand the Vikings will want one of them to be, but Bridgewater's coming off. like we, Everything we just said about Bradford now applies to Bridgewater. He had not a, an ACL there. He had a devastating knee injury. Like At the time, we were talking about how the leg might have been taken, and now it was it was irre- it wasn't fixable or whatever. And, and the, the the people, the paramedics who got to him were, were lauded with praise because they saved his leg or whatever. And his injury, like this, is more closer to Marcus Lattimore or I think it was Frank Gore as long ago who who had that. Or no, sorry, I'm thinking of um, McGee, Willis McGee, Will, Will, Willis McGee. Yeah, who, who has that. As far as I know, obviously I didn't see injury. Maybe you can correct me if you were there. But I know his injury was closer to that than it was just a routine ACL tear. Correct. So if you're betting on, like, like ideally Bridgewater wouldn't be coming back. Like, this sounds ridiculous, but ideally Bridgewater wouldn't be coming back to this extremely talented contending team. Ideally, he'd be going to a team that's, like, kind of where the results don't matter, where he can just play and get his comfort back and grow each week and slowly come back on that knee. But the problem is, as soon as Bridgewater goes, into it. Vikings have this expectation now where they're expecting to win games. So it's not going to be about, hey, Bridgewater looked pretty good today, but we lost. It's going to be, hey, we should have won that game. We need Bridgewater to be better. Right. And obviously, as a fan, you're kind of telling yourself, that's not the way I'm going to think. But once the game starts, once the emotion comes, once you see those playoffs in, in touching distance, once you think about how talented the defense is, how talented Thielen and Diggs are, you're going to come at the end of games and let's say you lose a game because of the quarterback. 
it's no longer going to be, hey, we're delighted we've got Teddy back. It's going to be, hey, we could be winning and we should be winning right now. And so I'm not buying into Bridgewater being a long-term guy until he comes back and shows it. And then you turn to Bradford. And Bradford, because it is lucky. It's, it's, it's unlucky. He's been hugely unlucky. A big reason we don't just say it's unlucky and it's a lack of, a lack of or it's a misfortune is because we work in the media and we have to be interesting and we have to talk things over and over and over again. And if you come in and just say, yeah, he's been unlucky, that's the end of the conversation. So that, like, largely Bradford's just been unlucky. But because he's been unlucky, he's now got a situation where his knees aren't built to last. Mm-hmm. And his knees are going to break down and have bone bruises and have problems like swelling where no one else would, would get it or a normal healthy knee wouldn't get it. So I, I also don't really think they're going to buy into him and he's going to cost a lot of money because he's going to have leverage and free agency again because he's just that talented. thing, like I said, I'm not necessarily sure either guy is the answer. Uh, why didn't you say that Case Keenum is the answer? Oh, well, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was about to pretend and say, oh, I just forgot him, and yeah, he's the answer. Like, I've watched Case Keenum for too long. I, yeah, I don't need a real answer for that. I think we're I think we're all set there. <laughs> but uh, Keenum, Keenum, I think is this is we when did. they signed him. My what I tried to express was that you can win half of your games with Case Keenum because some every once in a while he'll really surprise you, and every once in a while he'll be so bad that you have no chance to win. And most of the time, he'll just kind of be okay. And if you play good defense and run, you can probably win. And that's exactly what happened against the Packers. And, of course, you got the luck of Aaron Rodgers being hurt for the season. That also happened, too. So you need a little, a little, you get a dash of luck, a little bit of running game, a lot of defense, and you can win one out of every two games with Keenum. So I, I don't think that's a long-term option. I want to uh, shut down this case Keenum talk very quickly and say, can we talk about my new favorite Vikings? Who's your new favorite Viking? Pat Elsling. Oh, yes, yes. Now that you, well, if you had read my work in training camp, then you would have known about your new favorite Viking I don't read before. your work. Well, you should. Uh, I read yours. Um, but yeah, well, that's not, that's, not a, that's not a good thing for you. The, the screen game last year was an abomination, and now it's the biggest asset that the Vikings have because of him. He... The reason I love him as a player is, like, I noticed this with Todd Haley last year, and Todd Haley's a guy who gets a lot of criticism, but he's a guy I've been a big fan of for a while. He he is one of the more athletic centers in the league in Marquise Pouncey. And with Le'Veon Bell, because he's so good as a receiver and because they have a good enough offensive line for guys to hold up in one-on-one situations for a second or two, he would have these really delayed blitzes where uh, Bell would stay in and Pouncey would stay in initially, and then they'd have a, a count or whatever it was in their head where the two of them would break outside at the same time. And Bell would be a little bit ahead of Pouncey because obviously Bell is faster. So when Roethlisberger would flip the ball to Bell in the flat, Pouncey would be coming across on his own. The defender would be looking at Bell and he'd just get sideswiped by Pouncey. Mm-hmm. And it's a one-man screen that works perfectly because the routes go downfield and it draws all the defenders deep, so they're not in position to react. And the one guy who's covering Bell gets taken up by the defender who he never sees coming. And they did this uh, before Davin Cook got hurt. I think it was the week before Davin Cook got hurt. They did the same thing with Elfline, and the comfort he showed moving in space, the ability to locate and just to engage on a guy who was in space. Like, this this is not easy to, to, to get in someone's way in a 40 yards of space or whatever it is, and you're doing it as a 270 or whatever pounds player he is, and it's just, it, it, it's kind of, it, you watch Odell Beckham, and you see what Odell Beckham does, and you say, that's amazing, and he's doing things that no one else can do. But when you watch these big guys make these movements that obviously a wide receiver could make, but he looks so comfortable, and it's just 
it, it's an amazing thing to watch. Like, I'm not the greatest offensive line evaluator or whatever, but I can tell when a guy is comfortable moving. And that whole offensive line right now, compared to last year, where it was these big guys who were lugging their bodies around, they all look like they can move, and he's the big star there, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I, I was really surprised. Just I, I had him on my radar that the Vikings might draft him in the second round, and I was completely stunned that he made it to the third round because of the things that I had read about him. The, the bit I watched, I'm with you, that I go to other people for my offensive line expertise, but um, the, the, the people that I have followed that really focus on those offensive linemen to have a guy with that type of athleticism that can get out in space so quickly, in fact, too quickly on one of the screens. Uh, he actually, this would, this would be your favorite if you didn't catch this, Kean, because you love this. They actually did get called for an eligible man downfield this week. The Vikings yeah. did. Got him. <laughs> I, I absolutely hate that rule. It never gets called. This time it did. Well, he was, Elf Line was 30 yards off the line of scrimmage. Uh, by the time the ball was caught. I mean, he was literally 20, 30 yards down the field. It was like, okay, he could have been uh, wide open. He was wide open. I thought he was a receiver on the play. Um, but Elfline's ability to do that has completely changed the offense around. And the other thing just about him that I've noticed is I think it's got to be really hard since many of the offensive linemen in the league are veteran guys who have been around for a while. It's a position where guys stay in the league, it's not like running backs where they come and go and who the hell knows who's playing running back for you that week unless it's a superstar. It's like, this, you know, the guys on this line are Reef is 28 and Remmers is 30 and Berger's 36, and he's established himself as one of the leaders of the offensive line as a rookie, and maybe part of that is coming from a huge program that played in big games and had a lot of success. But I, I think it really just speaks to him and how quickly he's picked up this offense and become comfortable in it. And even more amazingly, he only played center for one year at Ohio State. He was a guard before that. And, I, I mean, that that's just incredibly impressive for what he's done. And I'm with you that he's changed the entire face of the offense. Now, if only Teddy Bridgewater can come back to 100% and not have to be Case Keenum all the time, then it can be even better. When Elfling snaps the ball over his quarterback's head four times this weekend, you can all come back to this podcast and remember why it happened. <laughs> yeah, the the uh, the key in jinx is that what it's going to be? I've I have a pretty good record of it lately, so <laughs> things things aren't going great. Well, there's the there's also the key in anti jinx where Carson Wentz is great. Well, <laughs> I think that falls into the same category. <laughs> you know what I think is funny? What I think is funny is that you know the thing that you do. The reason that ESPN brings you on and that you have a podcast and the reason that people read your book and read your site is because you formulate yeah. and your book. I'll, pr I'll, pr I'll pub everything. <laughs> the reason that people pay attention to your opinions is because you work and study and then f formulate opinions every single time. They're not going to turn out like the guy is the worst player ever, because the way that the NFL works now is that. Anyone can be a decent quarterback for a while. And and I mean a while like seasons. Like Andy Dalton had a great season. Didn't he throw like 40 touchdowns one year? I mean, the, the way the league works with so many gifted offensive players, the rules are in your favor. Offensive coordinators are going more to short passes that bump up completion percentages. Unless you're one of the elite quarterbacks, I feel like there's this range of 10 to 20 where it could be anybody at any time. And so, you know, maybe Carson Wentz is good enough to be there. 
or maybe one year he's not and one year he is in, right so you just your your job is to formulate opinions on these players and then if a guy has a good throw 30 people tweet you and say you're the biggest idiot of all time i mean it's just kind of a product of where we're at right now but the, the thing the thing that's interesting to me out of this is less people giving out because that's going to happen it's the reliance the, the sole reliance on touchdowns the idea that three touchdowns in a game completely changes the performance. Because yeah. if we yeah. go back to that Panthers game last week with Wentz, like, he had three touchdowns, but overall, like, he had one great drive in the second half. And it was a, it was a touchdown drive, actually. And besides that, he had two drives where they turned the ball over in the red zone and scored short, short field touchdowns. And besides that, like, the game as a whole wasn't great. He was, like, 57% accurate or something like that. I can't remember it off the top of my head. And he he was he, he took sacks that he shouldn't have taken. They always blame the right tackle for some for whatever reason. Went pump fake twice, fair tone as receiver, holds the ball forever, the right tackle gets beaten eventually, and then they blame the right tackle even though the quarterback's process is the reason why. And the, the thing that bothers me is if you like my my evaluation of the quarterback doesn't change at all if those wide receivers drop those touchdowns. But those three plays completely change your perception of the quarterback if they're if they're dropped or if they're caught. Because if he has 225 yards off of 30 attempts, it's a bad game. If he has 225 yards with three touchdowns, it's a great game. And it's it's something that's out of the quarterback's well, not out, completely out of the quarterback's control. But it's just it's too results based. It's too it ignores the process completely. And I'm at this place with Deshaun Watson right now, where I've got to keep saying, "Hey, look, he's been he's not actually playing that well. These numbers are usually inflated by other things that are happening on defense and are happening in the offense." Like like this past weekend. Jabril Peppers blew a coverage for his first touchdown. Then the second one was a screen where he pitched the ball across for an end around. The last one was a, a heavy play fake with the Andrew Hopkins running wide open behind the defense. And that's happened for three or four weeks in a row now. And the only response they ever get is, well, oh, you didn't like him in college, so you're just sticking to your mm-hmm. old opinion or whatever. But when I actually go through it, the only reason you're selling Watson is the touchdowns. Right. And it's just hugely problematic to me because I can break that whole game down without ever mentioning the touchdowns or ever mentioning a single stat and talk about him at great length. But you just come back with touchdowns and there's nothing else. And if the receivers keep dropping those passes, again, that happens. Like the, 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 the wide receivers do drop balls enough to impact your stats that much. And if that happens, your opinion completely changes and mine is the same. And that's kind of the thing that bothers me. Well, at least Vikings fans can appreciate it because Teddy Bridgewater had, what, 17, 18 touchdowns in 2015 because every time they got in the red zone, they handed it to Adrian Peterson constantly and did not have a very good red zone offense. But uh, I, I think I remember looking up that Matt Stafford scored something like 90% of his touchdowns at the goal line because that's where they always they would just throw the ball instead of trying to pound it in. But you know, you know the funniest part of that? The, same, the people would say, oh, Bridgewater doesn't get any touchdowns. And then they were, the reasoning for Bridgewater having a good offense would be Adrian Peterson. <laughs> right. It's like right. You're, using, you're using both sides. You're using Adrian Peterson's presence as a reason that he, he's, uh, his numbers aren't good or, and that, that they should be better. And then you're using Adrian Peterson's presence as a reason that the supporting cast is good. Right. So it, it, right. Just, it can't work that way. It can't be both ways. Yeah. Well, uh, I think if Bridgewater is back to 100%, he will be secretly because you'll never say you'll never hear anybody say an ill word about adrian peterson around minnesota not with the team i mean with fans they do uh but um he will probably be in secret quite happy to have delvin cook potentially in his future and at least Jarek mckinnon now and mckinnon is showing that uh, he can be the running back that i thought he was before 
I mean, I thought he was a, a big playmaker at times and just hadn't been because of the offense. What it really shows to this whole situation is I always used to kind of roll my eyes when the football men would yell at the TV that it was the offensive line. Be like, all right, I'm tired of hearing about the offensive line all the time, right? But a, an offensive line that's at the bottom of the league ruins everything, and you almost can't evaluate anyone properly because your offensive line was so awful that it just crushed you. And you know who's got the best offensive line in the league right now? Uh, My guy in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Uh, Jason and, Peters. And it works, it, it works the other way, too, because like, like with Andy Dalton, when you've got a great offensive line and your, your main problem is slow processing in the pocket, you can drop back in the pocket, stand in the same place, wait, 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 yep. eventually see your receiver come open and then throw an easy ball. And that's a huge part. It's probably the biggest part of a quarterback supporting cast, how long he has to process in the pocket. And if you've watched the Vikings, if you watch the, the Eagles, well, not the Vikings this year, but the Vikings this season fast, and compare them to the Eagles, that's a different sport. That's yeah. two players yeah. who are labeled quarterbacks playing completely different roles. Yeah. Andrew Whitworth is uh, single-handedly, he, he makes people, right? I mean, uh, Jared Goff all of a sudden is competent, right? And last year he looked like he couldn't play. That well, Greg Robinson was his left tackle last year, and Greg Robinson is and very, very bad. Now. Yes, and uh, Everson Griffin ate him alive when they played and sacked Matt Stafford. They, as a total, they sacked Stafford six times. So, Greg Robinson still getting uh, quarterbacks nearly murdered, uh, even though he's outside of the Rams now. But uh, anyway, Kean, always, always great to uh, talk quarterbacks with you. Um, we will. Check in with you again after maybe uh, Bridgewater plays a little bit, and then uh, we'll, we'll we'll see to, to get your analysis. But if people want to take a look at the book that you write every year, your annual, I, I would say we're not so deep in the season that it's not relevant. Um, PreSnapReads.com is the website. You've also got the podcast, which is called, I was just on it, it's, hold on, is it Nickel Coverage, Zone Coverage, Four Deep Coverage, what's the name of it? I'm just gonna. I'm letting you drown here. I'm not throwing you a lake ball. I'm just gonna <laughs> let you keep trying. Uh, it's the nickel package on Tuesdays with David Jacoby. Okay, all right. I had the basics of that. Yeah, I don't think if they typed in nickel coverage in the iTunes, it would come up. But maybe. <laughs> all right, the nickel package is the podcast that I was recently on and forgot the name of. But oh well. You're doing a great job with it, Kian. I enjoy following your work and yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, so, so great that you can't even remember the name. Look, I'm paying you a lot of money to come on this podcast right now. So I think you need to appreciate that and respect the hosts. <laughs> well, Kian, as as always, I probably owe you now your talent fee is so high that I'm not sure how many times we'll get together. But um, I, I'm sure I owe you a lot for many hours of podcasting. But it's always much appreciated. People should go check out your podcast, The Nickel Package, as I said and uh, as well on, on Twitter. So thanks again, Kian. Thanks, bud.